Hello, and welcome to the Talking About podcast, brought to you by ARU's Counselling and Wellbeing team. Talking About is a space to openly discuss the topic of wellbeing and mental health in a way that puts our students' thoughts and feelings at the forefront. My name is Julie Webb, and I'm a counsellor at ARU. I'm joined today by Claire Hodgson, Education and Training Facilitator for the Personalised Eating Disorder Support Charity, otherwise known as PEDS, and Daisy Buffalo, a current student and peer wellbeing mentor at ARU. In this episode, we're going to be talking about eating disorders. Morning, Claire, Daisy, thank you for joining me. I wonder if we start with maybe some introductions? Yeah, sure. So my name is Daisy. I am a third year medical science student. Um, so I'm graduating in July and I'm also a wellbeing pair mentor with um, Anglia Ruskin. Hi, and I'm Claire Hodgson. I'm the eating disorder training and support facilitator for the Personalised Eating Disorder Support Service. Daisy, I know you have lots of questions regarding um, eating disorders um, for this discussion. I wonder if you'd like to start us with one of those. Yeah, um, so I wanted to start by knowing what PEDS is with a little bit more detail. So PEDS is a local voluntary organisation that was set up in 2013 by two registered mental health nurses who used to work in the eating disorder wards and identified there was a big gap between people identifying that they had an eating disorder and receiving treatment because eating disorder services have always been very small. They're kind of a Cinderella of the Cinderella services. So they wanted to set something else up to sit alongside the NHS specialist services to support people throughout their journeys. So catch people earlier because we know that if you treat someone as soon as you recognise there's an issue with an eating disorder, they're more likely to get better quicker. And so their kind of main aim is to reach people at the earliest opportunity and they have um, links with ARU. So they're able to support students locally. They can uh, see people within two to four weeks of their being identified that there's a problem and they offer between four to six sessions with that person. And they, what we can do is see people in our Boroughbury base, which is in Peterborough, or virtually. Um, so that's really quite convenient, I think, for the students. And generally after the fourth session, they will see whether or not um, you still need support, ongoing support, or if you want to go on and proceed to the six sessions. And they've also got a weekly peer support group session, which you can log into online. And they do email and text support throughout and around that as well. So you're never on your own with this service. What's really positive as well with PEDS is that they work really closely with the local NHS service. So it's really integrated. And if you were to go to PEDS and your symptoms got worse, then you can go directly into the NHS services. And the same as if you were in the NHS services and you were improving, but you still needed some support before going out on your own. They're there to support people at that end of the journey as well. Gosh, that sounds like a really wide ranging service. Yeah, it's really, I think, very passionate people who work in the services locally. And Mandy and Sue, who set it up, are um, incredible champions for the area. And because I think generally people who work in eating disorder services are incredibly passionate and um, compassionate as well. We're really lucky with the people we have to be able to create a and good support services for people who've got this really difficult, challenging mental illness. What sort of treatments do you offer in that sense? Like what does the treatment entail? Is it like one-on-one therapy where you just kind of like unpack the sort of like the reasons why 
you might have um, this sort of disorders or? Yes, so they, we offer a range of things. So there's psychoeducation, so helping you understand why your, your brain is telling you to behave in this way and what you can do, some techniques to try and change the way that you're reacting to certain situations. They do body image work as well. Uh, nutritional meal planning, so actually understanding what the impact of not having food or having too much food, these, these things on your body is, and to know what, you, what would be an ideal scenario or food intake for you. Then they also help you challenge eating disorder thoughts and feelings. So being able to, people with eating disorders often talk about the voice. So this is the bully that sits in their brain and speaks to them constantly throughout the day. It never switches off. And being able to challenge that voice with reason and techniques is something that we help train people to do. And um, we also offer meal exposure. So being able to be in an environment with different foods or with people, because often when people have an eating disorder, they will become quite isolated, step away from social gatherings and any time food is involved. Um, and then dealing with setbacks and relapse prevention, because it, it is a chronic condition which can have uh, peaks and flows, I would say. So trying to help people understand when they might be exhibiting more extreme symptoms and needing extra support or when they're able to start flourishing in a new way. I'm wondering also, Claire, if you could talk to us a little about a bit about what eating disorders are. I have a tendency to kind of group them all in together and my understanding, my basic understanding is actually that they're quite separate. Absolutely. So they are a complex mental illness and I think first thing to identify is that it's not a choice. These are things that individuals are experiencing and it's the same way as if you catch a cold. It's not something you've done. It's just happening to you, unfortunately. And eating disorders are not all about food. And I think that's often what people see. That's the image in their mind is what they are. But they're largely about feelings. And the person is using the food to symbolize how and express how they're feeling. Um, and you've got a range of different eating disorders which present in many different ways, which I think makes it very difficult to identify an eating disorder. Often when you think about eating disorder, I think the image people conjure up is the media stereotypical image of a very thin, white, young lady. And that is absolutely not the case. So eating disorders will affect anybody, any nationality, any racial, ethnic background. Um, they don't discriminate. They happen to everybody. Um, and we have a range of different eating disorders. So again, top one most people think about is anorexia. This is the stereotypical image of a very slim individual. And this is someone who is struggling with body dysmorphism. So they don't see themselves the way that the rest of the world is seeing them. They will restrict intake of food and they will often take um, a lot of compensatory behaviours like excessively exercising or laxative use, those kinds of things to rid themselves of any extra calories in their bodies. Then you've got um, bulimia. So this is a cycle of um, binging and purging. So people often eat large quantities of food and then feel to compensate for that, then they have to purge either through excessive vomiting or laxative use. And again, you do get exercise as well. Um, and then you also have binge eating disorder, which is where the individual eats large quantities of food and they feel completely out of control. So it's not a choice to go and have six burgers. They feel compulsed to do it and they have no control over it. And it's extremely distressing. So often an image of this individual could be you know, going through the bin to find more food. 
So it's not a pleasant thing that this individual is going through. And with binge eating, there isn't the compensatory behaviours. You don't see the vomiting or the purging afterwards. So on top of the the big three, I like to refer to them, um, you've got a range of other conditions as well. So we've got individuals who don't fit in the atypical classifications, but you've also got um, rumination, which is where individuals may regurgitate their food, rechew it and swallow it. Pico, which is when people eat food that isn't food, such as coal or pebbles or wool. Um, ARFID, which is a new classification as of, I think, 2013, somewhere around there, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And that's where individuals don't have a body image component to it. So it's not about how they look. It's about the food itself, and that can be due to sensory issues. So often children who've had a lot of sensory problems with uh, weaning or things like that can progress into this. And it's, it can be seen as picky eating, but it's, it's not that. It's much more extreme. You've got people who have had a traumatic event that has happened to them. So they may have had a choking event potentially or seen someone choke on food, which then gets exacerbated into a much larger issue around food. Um, and then there's comorbid issues around having um, being on the spectrum potentially that can then cause issues with your food intake. And these individuals don't tend to feel hungry and they don't tend to be motivated by food. So they don't feel happy when they're eating food, those kinds of things. And it's a new classification. So it's still being identified what, who fits in those areas and how you would treat it moving forward. And then on top of that, there's a range of other conditions such as bigorexia or mode, which are all about a muscular pursuit. This idea of what I like to think of as the Marvel body these superheroes and that's what a human should look like and we all know that those people are actually dehydrating for three days beforehand and making their muscles look in an incredible way but it's just not realistic and it's the pursuit for that. Yeah that's quite interesting I mean um, and you see that a lot if you go to the gym like um, personal trainers and body like weightlifters and things like that they normally look like that like low fat percentage and that's quite interesting. What I heard from you was the complexity actually and some of the paradoxes. It's about the body for some and not for others. It's about food for some and not for others. It might be linked with trauma. It might be linked with other um, conditions such as autism, um, neurodiverse. Um, So actually it's quite complex, isn't it? I'm really curious how they get separated out and, and how diagnosis takes place, I guess. Yeah, so it is incredibly complex. And as you say, the causes are hugely varying. So they've shown that genetics can contribute, but they're not a predictive factor. So you can't say because of X, then you will have an eating disorder. They did show in some twin studies, if you have a family member who's had an eating disorder, you're seven to 12 times more likely to get one yourself. Um, Then society also has a huge impact. So there was a study done in Fiji when they introduced television for the first time, the first live broadcast. So they went in and interviewed some teenage girls to see what their food-related behaviours were to start with. And then they went in three years later after the introduction of television. And the food-related behaviours changed massively, as did their idealised image of what a body should look like, as did um, purging behaviours. They weren't happening before. And then they started having documented cases of eating disorders. So society and what we see has a huge impact. Um, And then also psychological, we have an impact from that. So as you say, there's neurodiversity, but also it's how we manage stress, 
whether or not we've experienced abuse, all of these things can contribute to whether or not you then go on to develop an eating disorder. And I think diagnosis is very challenging, as you were saying, Julie, is how do you identify that person? Um, and the DSM-5 does highlight when someone steps over from disordered eating and into an eating disorder. But I think our advice would be if you think someone's struggling with their eating or yourself is, speak to someone about it. And just to clarify, the DSM is the um, Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Psychological Disorders. And I think we're on number five, aren't we? And it gets bigger by the minute. Absolutely does. I'm wondering how we would identify some of the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder. And I'm, I guess I'm also really curious about that question, given our um, obsession with food, with image, with dieting. Um, and we have also a lot of kind of doctors in the media circuit, you know, telling us that time-restricted eating is a really good thing, that fasting is a really good thing. And, and I'm wondering how some of those things also play in to those struggling with eating disorders. Absolutely. There is so much information out there. It's very easy to go down a little rabbit warren and identify a little sect of society that tells you the rules that you should live your life by and how you can control your food intake. And I think there's a component there about thinking, is this information I'm taking in on the internet safe? Do I trust these websites? And then secondly, I think we need to consider, is this safe for my body? So cutting out a whole food group is not advisable. It will have an impact on your body moving forward. So always look wider when looking at those elements, I think. And I think it is difficult because image is everywhere of what we should look like, what we should be doing. And when we feel out of control with our lives, then we look for things we can control. And so it's very easy to control what you put into your body or how much exercise you do. And that can then give you a sense of control over elements that you're not able to control in your life. And then it can help the eating disorder grow. Do you feel like social media has played a big impact on that? Because nowadays you see quite a lot of everything. You see, in, you see it in both spectrums. Um, you see it both on the morbidly obese sort of area where people go like, what did I eat in a day as a fat person? And you also see loads of like fitness influencers. Do you think social media has played a big part in it? I think that there absolutely is a huge impact of social media. And what was interesting during COVID, we saw a really big increase in referrals and acuity of eating disorders. And that was national. It wasn't just local. And one of the suggestions as to why there was that increase was actually people were at home. They weren't able to go out and do the things they were normally doing, but they could use their phones and they could be on social media. And especially for young people where that's the way that they're not able to see their friends, so they weren't able to engage with people the same way. But you could access all of this information out there and suddenly see all of what is being suggested to you as the ideal. And as I was saying earlier, you know, the algorithms change. You start looking at one certain thing around food and then you start getting sent lots of things around dieting. As soon as they know your age, I get lots of stuff about, have you tried this weight loss thing? And it just happens to be that I'm a woman of this age, so they think that's what I should be looking at. And it does have a huge impact on people's perceptions of what their body should be. And therefore, they change their behaviours based on that. Yes. And the algorithms you mentioned there, I mean, it's quite pernicious, isn't it? Social media, 
you know, the slightest thing you check up on, it kind of remembers it. And then, you know, you get 10 messages that have bounced back somewhere along that topic. But I just have another question related to binge eating disorder. Um, If it would be okay if you could go a little bit deeper into it, um, because I just find that quite a quite interesting area of the sort of eating disorder spectrum. Binge eating disorder is where obviously someone is going to be consuming huge quantities of food. And the challenging thing about identifying uh, those individuals is they often have what would be classified as a healthy weight. And I'm using bunny ears here for anybody who can't see that um, because there isn't weight loss involved. And often when people start significantly losing weight, that's when we think, oh, there's a problem here. We need to really help this individual. And so for these people, we don't see that because they're eating large quantities of food. And so they can often go unseen, unnoticed that they've got this condition. The main things or symptoms, signs to identify this is that the person will avoid being around food, potentially in social situations, because it can be highly stressful. However, you will get people who have normal meal patterns and then go on to do binge eating elsewhere on top of that. So it's about trying to identify if you think this person is struggling. So are they isolating themselves? And then if you're around the house, is there huge quantities of food there, which you wouldn't expect or large packets in the bin without going through someone's, priv- you know, across their privacy? Um, it's a very challenging condition to help someone through. But again, it's identifying earlier and sooner can really help. So I find it interesting that now that you mentioned, you know, supporting people going through those things, what are the do's and don'ts for supporting people going through things like that, as well as what can someone that has identified or has been diagnosed with that, what are the do's and don'ts that they can? So I think for supporting someone, the do's are being open and honest and trusting. Someone is not going to come to you saying, I think I've got a problem with my eating, if they don't. So we have to be open and honest and also non-judgmental because actually we can't understand what they're feeling so we need to allow them to express it to us. It's really good to have open-ended questions so you don't want something that's going to be yes or no because it will often close them down and you won't get to the bottom of what they're trying to express. Giving them time is really important so that you can help them and understand them. And allowing them some self-efficacy, because we've talked about control earlier, you need them to be able to say and then come to solutions themselves. Being told what to do will not help this situation. In terms of don'ts, don't be directive. So don't say things like eat a donut, that won't help. Um, Locally, I am aware of one GP telling a patient to get a kitten, that doesn't help either. Emotional support, which I think is positive, but... um, doesn't necessarily get to the root of the problem. Not commenting on physicality, so size, what they've eaten, any of those things, because it just won't help. You can say things like, I'm concerned you don't have much energy. Or if you're wanting a positive side to that, you look really full of energy, you've got more colour back. There are ways of saying the same thing, but in a non-physical way because it can trigger people. I think it's important to understand what people's triggers are. So if someone has opened up to you, you can ask and say, what makes you feel worse? What doesn't help? Because then you know what to 
and not to do. You're not walking on eggshells anymore. And it's really similar to the suicide question. People are always worried. If I ask someone, are they suicidal? Are they going to commit suicide? The answer is no. In fact, it will help because they will be able to feel they can open up to you. And it's the same with eating disorders. Asking them if they have a problem with an eating disorder isn't going to cause an eating disorder. But ensuring that we speak to them in a calm, comfortable, honest way will help them move forward. And what you describe there really is uh, the, the ethics, if you like, of the skilled helper. So not necessarily counselling and psychotherapy and mental health support, but, but also just that listening ability and that ability to be really client-centred, to be with the person where they are. And I, I'm just curious, in my own mind, I, I also hear some a likening to kind of addictions. It's almost like addictive behaviour. And I'm wondering with eating disorders, does there have to be a buy-in from the person, if you like? Um, you know, the first step is that acceptance that, yes, I, I might have an issue. Does there have to be a buy-in really for um, support to really work? Absolutely. And I think you're, it's a really cool parallel to make with the addictions. Because often when people think of eating disorders, they, they can't get past the food. They're like, I just don't. I don't understand. It's just about the food. And you're like, it's not about the food. Like, but all they're doing is about the food. I know, but it's not about the food. So the parallels with alcoholism is if you had someone who was struggling with alcoholism, you wouldn't think, oh, it's because they love the taste of Bacardi or because they just really love alcohol or they really hate alcohol. It's, it's not the case. The alcohol is the thing that is helping them cope with something else that's going on in their life. And that I think it's a good parallel. So it's a coping mechanism in a way, for the psychological distress or emotional distress that's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case, so you've talked about what your charity is and you've gave us quite a lot of insight of the different sorts of eating disorders there are. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, so where can students, for me, are you get support if they're going through this? And maybe... If I have a friend and I'm quite concerned about that particular friend, where can I go to look for help? So I think the first thing to do is GP is always a really good point of call because if you are going to get referred into a specialist service, they're going to want to do a baseline health check, check your blood levels, check your weight, check your height, those kinds of things. And I know it's very difficult with university because you often have dual registration or a temporary registration with a GP. And then you might be seeing a service here or a service at home, and that can make things really complex. So GP is a really good first point of call. PEDS, so where we're from, you can self-refer. You could ring up with a query about a friend. We're there to help support you. On top of that, there is a relationship between ARU and PEDS where we are commissioned to deliver support specifically for ARU students. So we are here for that. CPFT is our local mental health trust and they provide the specialist mental health services and again another excellent service. You would get to them via either via PEDS or via your GP. Uh, you, there's also a lot of self-help material out there so Keep Your Head is a really good local website which talks about um, the services available here. There's um, self-help podcasts on the CPFT website but it's really good to do that alongside a professional as well at least so they can keep just to track an eye on you as to where you are. And then trusted websites. So I would go to Beat or to Feast. These are two really good websites, national websites. It's 
very easy again to go and looking at anorexia and ending up in a pro-anorexia website, which sounds horrific. They exist. And there are tips out there for people who want to go down that route. So stay to the trusted sites, the national sites that I've mentioned, because it's much safer for individuals. And also just to um, emphasise any students listening um, can contact the Counselling and Wellbeing Service here um, at Anglia Ruskin, which is aru.ac.uk forward slash wellbeing. And we can certainly aid a student and point them in the right direction. Um, with all the um, information that you just listed there, Claire. As well as if you need help, you always have your wellbeing peer mentors on campus the majority of the days. So in Chelmsford, from Monday to Tuesday, from 4 till 7 p.m., you're always going to find someone there. You can come and talk. Even if you don't want to talk, you can, can just come and just play some games with us and just have a chill, as well as you also have wellbeing peer mentors in Cambridge from Monday to Friday, the same timings as well. I'm just wondering now to just wrap us up, I'm wondering, Claire, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I guess that's exactly what I'm just about to do. Is there a takeaway? Is there one or, or two points you would like students who are listening to just take something away as a kind of really important um, part of investigating or being self-aware. I think if you are starting to have concerns about your body image or what you're eating or not eating, um, to speak to someone and to get help because I just believe talking and sharing makes a huge difference. And by doing that, you could prevent something worse happening to yourself very uh, in the very early stages. And to know that there is help and support out there, it's not something that you have done to yourself. It's something that's happening to you. And the sooner you get help, the sooner you can thrive to be the best self. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. That really kind of emphasises a theme of all our podcasts, actually, that reach out, speak to someone, make contact. Don't sit on your own. Thanks for joining us today to talk about eating disorders. If you've been affected by anything we've spoken about in this episode, please reach out to the Counselling and Wellbeing team and make the most of the support we can offer you. Visit aru.ac.uk forward slash wellbeing to find out more about our service and how to get in touch. See you next time for an in-depth discussion about stress and resilience. <laughs>